Let's pray. Father, we praise you that we come before you as a great God. We have the enormous privilege of coming before the Lord of the universe, the one who created all things, the one who created each one of us, the one who gives us every breath that we breathe, who holds this whole universe together. And we thank you that you've been so gracious to give us your word. And we ask simply, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you would open this word to you, to us, use my lips for your glory, and open our hearts, our minds, our ears to hear what you would say and to apply what we hear so that we live for you more wholeheartedly, Lord. For your glory we ask you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time um, we saw how God chastised the priests and the people of Israel uh, for the corruption that was in their lives and in their worship. He condemned them for marrying foreign women who worshipped false gods. When Israel was actually in a covenant relationship with the one true God. And God hasn't finished with what he has to say to them yet. So today we're picking it up um, in Malachi 2 uh, verse 13. And just to kick off with um, it's we're going to read 13 to 15 uh, to have the first um, and this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with, you, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But he did not make them one. Having a remnant, sorry, but did he not make them one? Having a remnant of the spirit, and why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. Now, if you've got a good memory, or if you've got the Bible open, you'll uh, recall that in verse 12, Malachi had presented the sin of the people, followed by the consequence. Whereas here, in verse 13, he reverses that. He sets out the consequence before the sin. And the consequence here was that some people were, were weeping over the altar, covering it with tears, because God was no longer receiving their offerings at the altar. There was sin in the men's hearts, for they had divorced their wives to marry pagan women. Uh, some commentators suggest it was the priests' wives who had been divorced by the priests, uh, who were the ones uh, weeping. Others suggest it's the tears of the hypocr hypocritical priests themselves. But either way, when there is unconfessed sin in our lives, God will not be pleased with whatever service we render to him, apart from a genuine confession and repentance from the heart. And these priests were going through the motions but their hearts were far from God. God is not interested in our works or our words unless our hearts are right before him, and he cannot and will never bless sin. Perhaps what is sadder, I think, is that the priests had to ask why this was. They were so out of fellowship with God that they couldn't see what they had done that displeased God. 
And it's so dangerous to flirt with sin so that our consciences are squashed and then our spiritual alertness will become dulled and we're then less able to hear God's voice challenging us to return to him. And the priests here were just going through the motions but a works-based religion doesn't draw us to God. It must be through faith in the blood of Jesus. Now, okay, they didn't know all about Jesus in those days, but they had so many prophecies that pointed to him. They looked for the one to come, just as we look, look back at the one who has come. And Malachi spells it out for them. The Lord had been witness uh, between the unfaithful men and their wives. And we should remember that God is the unseen witness at every wedding. He hears and he notes the vows made and expects us to keep them. He's also the unseen witness in every marriage in the years that follow the wedding. And the men being rebuked had dealt treacherously with their wives, having divorced them and then married pagan wives. And by doing so, they had broken the goal of marriage, which is that she is your companion. And they've broken the covenant of marriage, which is Malachi describes as the wife by covenant. It may be that the men felt that they would prosper more in their business if they married pagan wives. But God never approves of the merely expedient when it contradicts God's word. Maybe they just merely wanted a younger, more attractive wife. But that's not God's way if we have a covenant with another. And Malachi has some direct comments to make about marriage in this chapter. And uh, can I say here, I have no desire to appear critical of those who are not in ideal marriage situations. And God understands the place you are in if you are married to an unbeliever, but he still calls you to be faithful to him and to your spouse in that situation. And God knows how difficult it is for a believer to remain true to him when that person is married to someone who isn't a believer or who worships another God. And various Old Testament leaders in Israel had to deal with the problem of the people turning aside from God to idolatry because they had married pagan wives. But God calls us to be single-minded in our discipleship. And it's hard enough to avoid flirting with the world in its ways, even when they're married to a like-minded believer. And the other issue for Israel was that God had promised that their Messiah, who would be the saviour of the world, was to come from a particular bloodline that was Jewish, descended from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and then David. And the pollution of that line by intermarriage would impair God's purposes for the coming of Jesus who would come as the saviour of the world. So it's actually quite a crucial issue that uh, Malachi is addressing here. And furthermore, marriage was established in Genesis chapter 2 as a union of two people, male and female, who become one flesh. And in the Old Testament, it was a picture of the covenant between God and Israel. And in the New Testament, it's a picture of Christ and the church. God is always faithful and true, and he doesn't want his demonstration of that covenant faithfulness, which we have uh, seen in marriage. He doesn't want that undermined by unfaithfulness in marriage. 
the Malachi under, under, underlines the purpose uh, in marriage here in verse 15 when he says, did not he, God, make them one? And this affirms the one flesh nature of marriage. So to go against that is to, is to break God's purpose for marriage. And in verse 15 also, Malachi states one of the purposes of marriage. That God seeks godly offspring. A stable, God-fearing home is the best place to raise godly offspring. And it takes commitment from both parents to do that. In a marriage situation, it's the father who should take the lead biblically to ensure that his children are brought up in the knowledge and love of the Lord. And the importance of raising children in a godly environment cannot be understated. Marriage is never based merely on an emotion, but it's on covenant and commitment. And this stands in stark contrast, we've got a modern example. It stands in stark contrast to the singer Adele, who's been saying recently that she accepts her child was affected by her divorce, but explained it in the following way. There was nothing particularly wrong with the relationship, she says, but she was worried she would become unhappy if she stayed and didn't put herself first. It wasn't, just wasn't right for me anymore. I didn't want to end up like a lot of other people I know. I wasn't miserable, miserable, but I would have been miserable had I not put myself first. I think that's shocking. Uh, I mean, marriage is a commitment. And yes, there are good days as well as bad days. But to be that selfish, I think, is, is frankly appalling. Uh, and, but it reflects the, the society that we live in. But back to Malachi's context, to have the marriage broken and a pagan wife introduced would never be a, a means of raising godly offspring. And consequently, God says through Malachi, therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. There is a clear instruction here. Take heed. Let's watch out. Be alert. Temptation might come, but we are not to deal treacherously with our spouse, whether male or female. And that leads us naturally into uh, verses 16 to 17, where we read, For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, but he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? God clearly says here that he hates, or even you could say detests, divorce. And when God says that he hates something, um, it's worth our while taking notice. And that's not to condemn, can I assure you, anyone who has been divorced, because we all fall short of God's purposes for us. And divorce is just one of many ways that we fall short of him, sort of fall short of what he desires. And we fail him. And God graciously offers forgiveness to the repentant sinner, whatever the sin. So I, I, I'm not knocking anyone who's had to go through that situation. Um, but it is important to say that God loves the person who has been divorced and the one who divorced the other, but he hates divorce. Divorce pulls apart what God has joined together. 
And that's an affront to the glorious picture that we have in marriage of Israel being the wife of Jehovah and the church being the bride of Christ. God will never ditch either of these parties, even though he may discipline them. And in addition, marriage is the building block of a healthy society because it gives the stability of relationship in which godly children can best be raised. And again, I'm, no, I'm certainly not discrediting the hard work done by numerous single parents in bringing up their children. But research does show that marriage is the best place for children to grow securely and happily. And in verse 16, just after Malachi has stated that he hates divorce, the reason that God gives is that it covers one's garment with violence. Now, that's a strange statement, but it fits the culture of Israel in those days. In our society, when a couple becomes engaged, there's usually a ring given to the bride-to-be. But in ancient Israel, a man would place a corner of his garment over her. We find this custom in the story of Ruth in uh, chapter 3, 7 to 9 where we read, when Boaz had finished eating and drinking, he was in good spirits. And he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. And Ruth actually was effectively proposing marriage because she had the right to do so in view of her family situation and their customs. We get another example in Ezekiel 16, verse 8, where God is speaking to Jerusalem and said, When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you and you became mine, says the Lord God. And the phrase, spread my wing over you, can also be translated as spread the corner of my garment over you. And this explains the instruction we find in Deuteronomy 22.30, when it says, a man shall not take his father's wife, nor uncover his father's bed, or literally uncover the corner of his father's garment. So these are marriage-related customs in those days. And so back in Malachi, God is saying that divorce does violence to this covering of the garment procedure. So that's why we get this this turn of phrase uh, in that passage. Moving on to verse 17, Malachi says that these people have wearied the Lord with their words, although they apparently don't grasp why, for they ask that question. They'd forgotten that under the covenant that existed between them and God, they were to obey his word and follow him wholeheartedly. They were to keep themselves pure and avoid sin. And the law had plenty of information about what God expected of them. I think it's deeply sad when anyone wearies God with their words, because God longs for relationship with us. But that can never be founded on words that are empty or hypocritical. There's no point in trotting out long prayers or repeating long sections of liturgy if there's no heart or meaning behind them. There's no point speaking good sounding words to God if our hearts aren't right with him. 
we must come to him through our faith in Jesus Christ as Saviour, repenting of all sin, so that there is no blockage between us and our very holy God. God doesn't deal in hypocrisy and compromise, and he will not change or distort what he said in his word. He is always true and faithful to it. But he, and he expects the same behaviour from us. Yes, he knows we're fallen humans, but he's given us salvation. He's given us a new nature. He's given us the robe of righteousness and the indwelling Holy Spirit to ensure that we do have all the ingredients necessary for a vibrant walk with him, instead of wearying him with empty words. And the particular way that Malachi's audience were wearying God was by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? The priests here were distorting God's word. And sadly, that's continued over the centuries in the church. God will never, can never say that those who do evil are good because he is utterly pure and cannot change. He's holy. And that has something, I think, to say to our society today. God cannot delight in evil or in those who practice evil. Doesn't that show us how far our society has moved away from God's ways? Because there are many areas of our, of our society where people are saying that good is evil and that evil is good. And that's the fruit of raising children without God, of not telling them, or rather of telling them they are just a random development from monkeys, but with no relevance to God in their lives so that they might come to know him. We've abandoned what God, God's word says is true and embraced false ideas that have been fed to us by the enemy. And the second question they asked was, where is the God of justice? And this accusation is an offence to God who is infinitely and eternally just. How can God, who is the foundation of all that is just and right, be lacking in justice? Yet the question is echoed so often today as people question God and accuse him of not doing that which is right and just. People say, why is there illness, death, unfairness? Why do earthquakes happen, tsunamis happen? Why do cruel regimes gain power and act brutally? And yeah, these are hard questions, but ultimately they are the outflow of the fall that occurred in the Garden of Eden. And Adam chose to follow Satan, and it's been a downward slope ever since then. And it was the complaining people who had been unfaithful and unjust towards God. Yet God showed his justice in promising and then son, sending his son to die in our place and to take the punishment that we deserved. And God is still totally just and right. He's done everything needed, everything possible to reconcile man to himself. But if his gracious offer is refused, then in effect, man chooses to rebel against God. And the time is coming when Jesus will reign on the earth and there will be peace on earth because the Prince of Peace will be here. And it will be a reign of righteousness and justice. And it will show that fallen man still needs a saviour because he has a sin nature. And we dare not accuse God of injustice for he cannot go against his righteous character. Let me see something of God's answer as we move on to chapter 3. 
And after the, the heaviness of the first two chapters, there's a, there's a light at the end of the tunnel here, which I think is great. Uh, he says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And Malachi, whose name means mess my messenger, here looks some 400 years ahead to God's messenger in the person of John the Baptist. Malachi, the messenger, was the last of the writing prophets in the Old Testament, whilst John uh, the Baptist, as the foretold messenger, was the last and greatest prophet in the Old Testament dispensation. And in an ancient royal procession, the messenger went before the king and he would announce the king's arrival to indicate the route, to remove any obstacles in the road. And John the Baptist fulfilled that ministry for Jesus. We get the same um, idea indicated in Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And John's ministry was to prepare the way for Jesus, the promised Messiah. And Jesus is the second messenger um, mentioned in this uh, verse, sorry, back in, in Malachi, um, when it says the Lord um, will suddenly come to his temple, as even the messenger of the covenant. And uh, he came suddenly to his temple uh, when on earth, because twice during his ministry, Jesus entered the temple to cleanse it indicating that the falsehood and the hypocrisy that Malachi had spoken of was still rife in Jesus' day. And many of Jesus' battles were with the religious leaders of his day because they should have been teaching the people uh, God's word and leading them to true faith in him. But sadly, they were more concerned about their position, their status, wealth, comfort, than they were with the reality of a living walk with God. When if our eyes are not firmly on the Lord and his word, the same dangers can easily creep into our lives. After all, they've plagued the church over the centuries and they still do. And Malachi referred to the messenger, messenger here as the messenger in whom, in whom you delight. This is likely because so many people in Israel longed for the coming of their promised deliverer, looking for the blessings of his coming kingdom. And they loved the, prophet, the, the prospect of that. But they conveniently forgot the, mornings of, the warnings of judgment that God had given. And we'll see that in the next couple of verses. And so the message from Malachi moves ahead to the second coming in Malachi two and, uh, 3, 2 and 3. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. When Jesus returns, he will come in judgment 
against his enemies. And at the time of Jesus' second coming, the armies of the nations of the world will be gathered against God in the valley of Megiddo. And none of them will be able to stand when Jesus comes. But God's heart is to purify the Jewish nation, his chosen people. And it was the sons of Levi who were the priests that were profaning the temple offerings in Malachi's day and in Jesus' day. In the law of Moses, God provided three ways for people and things to be cleansed and made acceptable to God. And that was water, fire and blood. There's no mention of blood here because Jesus died for sinners at his first coming. But the refiner's fire was extremely hot because it melted the metal so that the impurities rose to the surface and could then be skimmed off. And the refiner would not allow the fire to become too hot, nor would he leave the metal in the heat for too long or it would be damaged. And I think it's so reassuring that God it's God doing the refining here. He controls the temperature and the clock because he has no wish to damage his people, but to produce the desired results of purifying them and then the heat is removed. And then the water aspect of cleansing is picked up by the launderer's soap or some versions say fuller's soap. And that's a caustic soap and was effective in producing bright white clothing. And in Jerusalem, the cleansing process took place in a fuller's field outside the city because of the smell. And with the cloth soaking in soap and, soap and water, the fuller's beat it and stamped it to remove the impurities. But then, of course, Jesus suffered just outside Jerusalem as he took our sins. But his desire is now to purify Israel, to be the people that he called them to be. And compare the intended clean result with the bright, white, dazzling clothing that Jesus wore at his transfiguration. And we can see something of the intention that uh, Malachi is getting at here. Then Malachi continues in verses four to six. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage owners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. And once the nation has been cleansed and the priests made ritually pure, they can then bring offerings that are acceptable to God, as they had done in former years. And as God does his cleansing work, he highlights specific sins that he is firmly opposed to. The first of them is sorcery. God forbids sorcery in the Bible with the death penalty because it involves contact with demons. And we are to look to God and not the enemy for our guidance and our wisdom. And I think how the UK has viewed witchcraft over the years is a good example of how a society, of how our society, has watered down its response to such practices. Let me just explain. Henry VIII introduced the Witchcraft Act of 1542, and the punishment for witchcraft then was death. 
Elizabeth I amended that uh, by the Witchcraft Act of 1563, under which the death penalty only applied where harm was caused, otherwise it was imprisonment. Then the Witchcraft Act of 1735 amended that, and a person claiming to have occult powers was to be punished as a vagrant and as a con artist, subject to fines and imprisonment. That was then repealed by the Fraudulent Mediums Act of 1951, which prohibited a person from the deception other than solely for the purpose of entertainment. And that was finally replaced by the, by the Consumer Protection from Unfair Trading Regulations 2008. And the purpose of that was to target unfair sales and marketing practices. And note how the slippery slope of acceptance of these things uh, as God's word has less traction in the society. And God then says he will judge adulterers We've also already seen how God has a very high view of marriage. He will judge perjurers, those who lie under oath. And God's, God hates those who bear false witness. And he is inherently 100% faithful and truthful, and he hates falsehood. God will also judge those who exploit wage earners. People are entitled to a fair wage for the labor paid promptly. And the oppression mentioned in continues with those who take advantage of widows and orphans, as well as foreigners in society. God is always tender to those who are weak in society because they are less able to look after themselves. And he requires his people to take care of them. And I think how a society treats the weaker people in their midst speaks volumes about the, the priorities of the people concerned. And the summary from God is that all these people who will judge, who he, uh, who he will judge, is that they do not fear him. And of course, that makes a huge difference. And then in verse six, God declares that he doesn't change. And that's both challenging and reassuring. For us as believers, it's glorious. God doesn't change. And he will always be true to his word. And his love continues forever and all his other attributes continue forever but for his enemies the fact god doesn't change is awesome because his judgment against their sin that has not been brought before the cross is sure and we cannot pretend that god is like us changing from day to day because he doesn't change and in context this comment is made to israel and because god doesn't change they are not consumed God chose Israel thousands of years ago, and he's faithful to his promises. But they do need discipline and chastening. And from what we've looked at today, it's clear that God looks for purity in our lives. He looks for faithfulness in our walk with him. He looks for a living relationship with him, and not one that wearies him. Our role, surely, is to learn from this, and then respond with faith and obedience. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this passage. Lord, there are challenges here. Uh, there are things to be put right in our lives. But thank you that you are a God of mercy and grace. Thank you that you are a God who sent his son. And we see in this passage also the fact that Jesus came and is coming again. And when he comes, it will be glorious. Hallelujah. Lord, help us to live in the light of that coming. Help us to live 
in the light of the salvation that you've so graciously given us and seek to serve you and to reach others with the good news.